Risto here from George Mason University. Uh, today's podcast discusses quantitative instrument development, and I panicked when I had to uh, uh, do a podcast about this uh, because I don't know how I'm going to get myself through this. However, uh, we do have a great guest today to guide us in this process, uh, Dr. Cassandra Iannucci. Um, she is a lecturer in health and physical education at Deakin University and comes to our podcast via Limerick University in Ireland, where she just recently completed her PhD. So um, I said your name wrong, but that's okay. Iannucci, uh, welcome to the first ever Methodology Podcast. Thanks, so not to worry, um, you, you wouldn't be the first and you won't be the last to mispronounce my name. So, uh, Look, if you had told me four years ago when I started my PhD that I'd be talking with you today about scale development and validation, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, but here we are, and I hope this can be useful for anyone considering scale development or just interested in understanding more about the quant side of things. Yeah, I was actually really happy when you sent me this article on instrument development is um, we can address this really, really complex issue that many people without a research background may not think is that big of a deal. Um, I also wanted to highlight some more quantitative articles on the podcast. I know we've had some great uh, qualitative pieces in here. Um, and to start up a series of more like a methodology podcast for those interested in that research methods part. Um, you know, I, I have a little bit of a PTSD from grad school and all of this, uh, and math never was really my strong suit. And literally my first class in grad school after coaching wrestling for five years at the university level, I walked into a uh, probability and statistics class at Columbia and the professor gives us uh, a pretest. And this is like the first test that I've taken in like five years. Uh, and I bomb this test like really hard. Um, the next day we get the test back and the teacher says, if you got anything below a seven out of 10 in this class, you're going to struggle. And I got a three out of 10. So uh, all that to say, uh, thanks for coming on to explain this stuff to people like me. Um, I'll ask some stupid questions. Um, so my first question is, um, if I wanna measure role conflict like you did in your work, why don't I just go open my computer and start typing up questions and then load them onto SurveyMonkey, uh, send it out to the teachers, get results, and boom, I have a paper to publish. Well, as you mentioned there, um, developing and validating a measurement instrument is quite a complex multi-step process, which I'm sure we'll break down uh, throughout the episode. But in short, in short, to answer your question, without validating a measurement tool, you don't know with any certainty that the tool actually measures what you intend to measure, which then completely challenges the validity and reliability of your research. Um, the development process needs to be rigorous, and so there's a formal process that should be followed. Great, so what was the process of making this instrument? I know it's uh, heavy, so can you kind of uh, walk us through that? Sure, um, and in an effort to make this digestible for any listeners who might not have a quantitative background yet, um, and at the risk of oversimplification, we first developed and validated the content of the scale using a six-step process, and that mirrored um, one, uh, the process that was used by Weiss et al. 2014, followed by a two-phase validation approach involving exploratory factor analysis, or EFA, and conformatory factor analysis, or CFA. And that Weiss et al. 2014 article provides a really good example of instrument development and validation. 
So the six-step process we used to first develop the scale will sound much more familiar to qualitative researchers. Step one involves reviewing theory and previous literature. Step two is conducting interviews. And in my dissertation research, we interviewed teachers of physical education and another school subject. Step three is creating a pool of items. And items are each individual question that together make a scale. Step four is enlisting the help of experts. And we conducted three separate focus groups in this step with a, with a variety of experts, including teachers who are experiencing the phenomenon we were interested in, um, measurement specialists, and teacher educators. So the primary focus and purpose of these focus group interviews was evaluating the construct validity of the pool of items we developed in step three. And participants were asked to review the survey for clarity, accuracy, ambiguity, and to identify any potential missing concepts. So following any amendments to the scale after the focus group interviews, step five is pilot testing the scale. And then step six is finalizing the list of items. And that's interesting because it seems very intuitive to a qualitative researcher and hopefully our qualitative researchers got past confirmatory factor analysis uh, statement there <laughs> to keep listening. So um, so why did you want to make an instrument? Did you do a study before this? Well, validating, developing and validating the teaching multiple school subjects role conflict scale is part of my dissertation. And so to position the scale development and validation in the broader scope of my research, my dissertation followed a sequential exploratory mixed methods design strategy. And that's really, that's characterized as beginning with a qualitative study followed by a quantitative study where the results from the qualitative study are used to inform the quantitative phase to explore a particular phenomenon. So in the beginning phases of my dissertation, which was all qualitative research, the results suggested that physical education teachers who were also teaching another school subject concurrently experienced a really interesting push-pull relationship between their role as a teacher of physical education and their role as a teacher of another school subject. And when I began to unpack this further, it became clear that this was a prevalent reality experienced by teachers in this dual role position that warranted further understanding. So really, it was the initial qualitative results in my research that gave rise to the idea to create and validate this tool. And the qualitative results also contributed to the conceptual support for the actual design and validation of the measurement tool. And this is true to a sequential exploratory mixed methods design strategy. So in essence, the qualitative research completed in phase one of my dissertation is embedded in steps one and two of the six step process we just spoke about. Now, who were the participants in, in the study? Uh, so to be included in the study, participants needed to have previously or currently be teaching physical education and another school subject concurrently in an Irish secondary school. And you divided your participants then into subsamples then, is that correct? Yes. So once we collected data, we needed to randomly divide the full sample of participants into two subsamples, one which was used to run EFA, the exploratory factor analysis, and the other for CFA, the confirmatory factor analysis. There's no real consensus in the literature on EFA sample sizes, 
but generally speaking, a sample of more than 50 is considered appropriate, whereas CFA requires a larger sample size. Again, there's varying opinions in the literature, but a minimum sample size of about 200 is typically recommended. Um, but these numbers could vary sig significantly depending on the number of scale items. Okay, so what's the difference between exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis? I'm, I'm assuming one is exploring and one is confirming. Yeah, that's exactly right. And at the risk of oversimplification, EFA is a multi-step statistical process that uncovers complex underlying patterns in the, in the data that are otherwise not detectable with the naked eye. So in simple terms, it somewhat patterns um, and groups items into factors. So EFA, unlike CFA, can be a creative process. As a researcher conducting EFA, you are using theoretically supported and informed decisions to somewhat play with the data. So for example, you may remove or reinsert different scale items. And remember, each scale item is a question on your survey. Um, and there are guidelines and rules of thumb for this process. So, for example, item um, and factor reduction is conducted by removing items that don't load significantly or are loaded on an unjustifiable factor or have a, a significant cross-loading. And every time you make one of these changes, you rerun the solution. The hope is that a stable factor structure is found and what you end up with is a, is a statistically and conceptually sound scale. And what that means is that patterns of association between the scale items or survey questions have been identified and are supported both in terms of satisfying statistical requirements, but also make sense conceptually or theoretically. So if, uh, if that is exploratory factor analysis, am I right to assume uh, confirmatory factor analysis will then either confirm or not the validity of the factor structure using a different and larger sample of participants? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So fit statistics are used to examine the degree to which the hypothesized model that, that you um, identified in your EFA fits the data in CFA. And there are a number of statistical softwares out there that you can use to conduct CFA. Now, what are fit uh, statistics? What, is, what does that mean? Well, there are a number of statistical tests that are used to determine whether the hypothesized model fits to the data. And these are referred to as goodness of fit indices or fit statistics for short. So there's some disagreement in the literature around which indices need to be reported. But generally speaking, you could expect to run and report a chi-square test, the root mean square error approximation, the non-normalized fit index, the comparative fit index, and the standardized root mean square residual, which might sound like a completely different language, but really what's important to know is that there are these different statistical tests with varying values that indicate the hypothesized model is a good fit to the data that need to be conducted and reported. And so are these fit statistics what then forms your results? Uh, yes, but there are also other statistical tests that need to be included um, that are used to determine things such as the factor loadings, average variance extracted, discriminant validity, and internal and composite reliability measures. 
Okay, that tops off my capacity for st- statistics, and thank you for guiding me through that. Um, so, uh, any final thoughts or kind of uh, wrap up here? Well, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, developing and validating an instrument is quite a complex process. But if someone like me, who once strongly identified as a qualitative researcher, can understand and use the process, um, it is a skill set that can be developed. I also think it's important to mention that while the development and initial validation of a measurement instrument is an, an, it's an important first step, it doesn't stop here. Uh, the validation process is ongoing and evidence from independent studies in a variety of contexts is needed to continue to confirm the validity of any scale. Yeah, and I, I had no idea how much the beginning part of that is so, so qualitative of doing the interviews and uh, test and developing that scale. So thank you for that clarifi- uh, clarification and, and thanks for taking us through this. Um, I know it might be heavy for some, uh, but this is such a valuable piece of research. I mean, you can't, um, you can't just go on and make a questionnaire and give it to a thousand people and make, uh, make claims with it. So instrument development is such a huge piece of, of our uh, research and understanding what we know. Um, so can you let people know where they can find more information on your current work you're doing or your social media, stuff like that? Uh, yeah, you can find me on ResearchGate and Twitter. Uh, my Twitter, Twitter handle is at Casa Maria B, which I'm sure um, we can have written down somewhere. Yep, and I'll link uh, to those and the um, ResearchGate site on the notes and to the article as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, and that's all we have for you on this one. Thanks for listening.